0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community
1: radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
2: And that's a rousing send-off for Chris's great voices. And now it's time for, not quite so rousing, but it's Tuesday, home time with Jan Bartlett. Today, renewable energies are the way to go, and today we'll be looking at offshore wind farms with Pat Simons, who's a campaigner with Friends of the Earth. A new group established to counter neo-fascists with Debbie Brennan, and it's called Push, but there's more to it than that, and she'll explain that a bit later. can Nobel Peace Prize bike ride from Melbourne to Canberra, they took off on Sunday, and I've recorded a short interview with Jem Rumold, who's on the bike ride. Another grouping of activists protesting the far right is IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australian Network, and Shirley Winton will be c- catching up on that. The history of the free flotillas, or free Gaza flotillas to Gaza, with Michael Coleman, and an analysis of the impact of the U.S. withdrawal of funding to the UN ADOC Organisation for Palestine Refugees, Nasser Mashni from APAN, and that's Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. But of course, it's that time of the day, and it's Mr Kevin Healy.
3: A week, Jane, listener, when last week we left this zombie figure lurching toward the shore, covered in detritus from the fossil's tailings uh, cesspool, where former big supremo Malcolm Tunnel Bull and minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, duly bash up the workers along with negative energy policy 183 and tax cuts for the filthy rich had sunk without trace. Zombie figure lurching to the shore as it re-emerged back where it all began garden as minister for keeping us secure yes constable peter dupper still determining who it is safe to let in and who it is unsafe to let in starting more wild celebrations and dancing in the streets of Nauru and manas by those no proper papers queue jumping illegal boat people as they sort a list of pete's associates and friends imagine the latter would be a pretty short list and by week's end every no proper papers queue jumping illegal boat person had applied to be an O pair with the right connections we're a walk-up start they explained Quite possibly, Pete confused his rhyming slang thinking Pet" pairs meant home affairs or quite possibly thought they were the same thing. But on balance, these attacks. As an aside, I suspect he's the first MP and what an honour to lose two leadership ballots in the same week, indicating his huge popularity over and above his brilliant grasp of great one arithmetic. But on balance, these attacks have no substance. On one side, we have the big supremo of the AFL, a member of a filthy, rich, south, true grazier dynasty whose uncle was a caring business class party minister under the little bald-headed bloke, whose names if I recall correctly were associated with the background machinations to the 90s maritime dispute. AFL big supremo of lobbying for a woman to be released from detention so she could work for a member of the extended filthy, rich, grazier family which makes huge donations to the Caring Business Class Party, supported in lobbying by an AFL staff member whose previous job was working for the Caring Business Class Party, and a department recommending she not be released because she would breach her visa conditions. OK, that's one side. On the other side, Pete says all that had absolutely nothing to do with his decision. It was just his innate compassion and generosity. So clearly the balance comes down overwhelmingly on Pete's side. Pete wins easily. Not guilty, Your Honour. And ditto, the other case had nothing to do, nothing to do with the party involved being a mate in the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land force, uh, sorry, police force. Furthermore, Big Supremo scuttled them more last son, said Pete's explanation clearly passes the pub test, which says plenty about the benchmark for the pub test. I tested it on Tiny and Eric and Matt and Conchetta and Pete himself and a few of the boys in the members bar. And as far as the week that was is concerned, that's the end of the matter, because Constable Duffer's compassion and generosity are legend. Well, he was a copper. Pete got straight down to work and banned whistleblower Chelsea Manning from coming here to speak. Uh, but I see Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country's Nigel Farce is here on a racist speaking tour, Pete. Nigel isn't a, you know, like common, like criminal. Are you, like, opposed to, you know, freedom of speech? Ah, yes. What was Chelsea's crime? She, or he, or, you know, whatever, exposed what U.S. ob-train killers were, like, really up to, using, you know, like civilians for shooting practice, for instance. Things decent people, you know, have no right to, like, know. The long haired commie greenie wooden worker in an iron black armband lot have been carrying on all week that new big supremo scuttle them more lash sun was downgrading environmental concerns to even lower than they had been. When if they'd only approached the matter with an open mind, they'd have to admit their prejudices and concede that in three days, scuttle them eradicated climate change altogether. Announcing he was concerned with lowering energy prices, Scuttle declared he was not concerned about climate change because I want to concentrate on what is happening now, indicating Scuttle is aware climate change is not happening now, otherwise he wouldn't have said it. So now we can say there's no such thing as climate change. All these scientists around the world seeking solutions and even acknowledgement of the problem for years and scuttle themselves it in three days. And to prove it, Friday the government gave a million to Brown Coal Innovation True Blue Aussie, whoever they are, to investigate a new coal-fired power plant in the Latrobe Valley. But, as Resources Minister Matt Cole-Caravan assured us, it would be low-emission coal. Although, given climate change has been resolved, it doesn't really matter now, emit as much as we like. Low-emission brown coal. Brown coal has unique properties that make it ideal for upgrading to higher value products, Matt said, direct quote. Well, until Scuttle Dev eradicated climate change, climate change was one of those unique properties back in that long, long ago time before last week. And of course, the brown coal tailings in that fossil cesspool would have contributed to resurrecting the Constable Duffer zombie. Although... No, no, that's not a good example because he did say higher value products and the new energy minister Angus Tailings said he just loves renewables energy but first he must lower electricity prices and we can't afford renewables because they'll force coal out of the equation and the fossils know we can't afford to force coal out of the equation. Yeah, how much lower can you get prices Angus? Ideally. I'd like to reduce them to the levels they were in the 90s. Uh what, before the industry was privatised? Yes, yes, back then when it was so inefficient. And the new Environment Minister, Melissa Price-Out-Renewables, does acknowledge climate change. Well, when climate change existed, because she refers to it as so-called climate change. A perfect fit for Environment Minister. So what are those long-haired, commie, greenie lots carrying on about? Last week, former minister for handing all that lovely workers' superannuation to the big banks and financial institutions, Kelly Oda, why are workers so evil, picked up the prestigious, whoops, that backfired badly award as the Royal Commission, which was supposed to nail the evil unions, instead nailed the big banks and financial institutions for ripping off workers big time. But poor Kelly's failed campaign was then supported by that highly responsible big four, International Financial BMO, KP on the customers, MG, Wealth Chief, that's what he's called, Wealth Chief, who attacked the Royal Commission for its imbalance. There was a general expectation it would be a rough couple of weeks for the industry as a whole, he complained. What surprised me was the significant amount of time dedicated to retail funds versus quite a cursory amount of time on industry funds. I wasn't expecting that imbalance. Oh, what a pity. Does this mean KEP on the customers, M.G., won't get its hands on all that lovely-lovely? Oh, and the great defender of the banks and financial institutions against the workers running their own affairs, the wealth chief at K.P.O.N., none other than... Former AWU Secretary Paul Howes, that for out, a good union secretary, so he's obviously on the worker's side. And note, his predecessor as union secretary, now Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, has hit the front in the preferred Supremo poll at 30-something percent, showing what high regard we hold them all in their race to the bottom. Still, on our highly responsible banking industry, and in the right hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing department, Lord Rupert of Wapping displayed his genuine concern for those struggling to keep a roof over their heads Thursday's Lord Rupert of Wapping sin, P1, screaming headline, It's a Stick Up, accompanied by the Worst Pack Bank logo. Shameless Worst Pack slugs homeowners. And on and on this hard-hitting, unemotive uh, news story went. Then turn a couple of pages, and his diet-mind economic expert, Terry Pukan headline, They had no choice. This was the rate rise we had to have, Terry informed us expertly. Right. So... Given the unemotive, the truth and nothing but the truth accuracy of Lord Rupert's news reports, Terry is telling us, for the good of the banks and the economy, and therefore for the good of all of us, those with mortgages simply had to have a shameless bank sticking it up them and slugging them. Well shameless banks by the time it settles down because and this is a bit confusing given we simple folk would think if a rival ups its prices that'd be good because you've got lower prices but no these economic experts who know all about these things said that worst pack jacked up its uh, said that after worst pack jacked up its prices the other banks would have no choice but to follow suit huh Doesn't it show how difficult it is for we non-practitioners to comprehend the intricacies of this laissez-faire competition policy, greatest little economic order of them all? Finally, story on the ABC this morning, surprise, surprise, record profits in this reporting season, but wages still down. The slow wages growth that so concerns those making the record profits. So where is the money going if not to employees? The presenter asked. Gee, that's a tough one. Although, got a feeling it mightn't take an absolute genius to work it out. Good afternoon.
2: And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And as I often say, you can hear more of Mr Kevin Healy tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. To Stay tuned for a whole hour of Kevin as he pours a cup of tea for his guests on City Limits here on 3CR. Friends of the Earth last week slammed the Federal Government for squandering taxpayers' $1 on polluting brown coal and called on the Liberal Opposition Leader in Victoria to distance himself from the announcement. Environment groups are instead supporting landmark renewable energy projects, such as offshore wind farms, one of which is proposed off the Gippsland coast and is gaining support from the Victorian Government and top investors. Today we find out more about offshore wind farms and to do that I'm joined by campaigner for Fo, Pat Simons. First, Pat, can you explain when the technology was established and how many countries have taken up this technology?
1: I can't tell you the the number of countries that have, like, actually developed it. But, like, just generally speaking, it's mostly been taken up by Europe, largely northern European countries, because they have excellent resource. You know, Vestas is one of the biggest wind manufacturing companies in the world, and that's a a Danish company. So Denmark sources about 47% of its um, energy from renewables, a lot of that is offshore wind. So yeah, the development has really largely focused in around some of the Nordic countries like Denmark, as well as places like Scotland. Just really windy places with kind of fairly shallow seas. So that's where the most of the development has really occurred.
2: So it needs shallow seas?
1: If you're installing them on a platform, the deeper the water's, the more difficult it becomes to build an offshore wind project. That being said, there's some interesting developments in floating offshore wind. So I believe it's in Scotland where the first floating offshore wind project has been developed. And that's probably one of the most efficient offshore wind farms in the world. Probably over time, as that technology improves, we will begin to see wind farms develop in deeper waters. But yeah, it's just more difficult when you're dealing with deeper, rougher seas compared to a calmer, more shallow seas.
2: What do you see as the advantages and the disadvantages
1: of doing it offshore? For offshore wind, the main advantage is the fact that when you're out in the ocean, the wind is first of all faster. It's more consistent. It also means that because you're not you're not close to you know human settlement, you can build larger facilities. So the towers are, large, are typically much taller, also wider. So they're they're larger turbines. And towers. So that means that you can actually get the resource from a higher part in the air and the sky where the wind is faster and more consistent. The other advantage of larger um, wind towers is that you can actually have larger turbines and nacelles in the wind turbine itself. That means they have a higher generation capacity. Um, So all of those things combined means that, like, you're going to have a higher amount of possible energy that you can produce, like in terms of potential energy produced from a single turbine, as well as actually it's more efficient compared to a typical onshore wind farm. The other advantage is that wind blows at different times in different places, and so when it's windy in an area where there is onshore wind farms, um, it might not be windy on the ocean, but typically it's pretty much always windy on the ocean. So when the wind stops blowing in the places where you have onshore wind farms, you can also get wind from the offshore facility. So it's that balancing act between the two places. So that's really important um, if we're ever going to get to 100% renewables.
2: What about the way it produces electricity? How does that work? Is it different or is it exactly the same? On it's,
1: it's pretty much exactly the same as an onshore wind turbine. Um, that's my understanding. I think it could be good to get an engineer on and ask them those questions. But my understanding is that that basically it's they can hold larger turbines and larger nacelles and so they can be built to kind of handle higher speeds Um, they have a higher generation capacity so it's like each individual turbine just kind of because of where it is in the wind it's going to be more efficient and it also has a higher generation capacity compared to an onshore facility
2: what about the cost of electricity does that decrease
1: That's dependent upon a lot of different things. It's kind of dependent upon just what's happening in the electricity market. Um, So that'll be different in different places. But what I can say as a general rule, the price of wholesale electricity prices, which is, you know, the electricity produced by the actual generators rather than the price that you pay when you get your bill, those are two slightly different things. That is largely uh, a function of supply and demand, so just basic economics. So when you add more supply you typically will see a, re- a reduction in electricity prices. And that's, that's because when there's more electricity out there, companies have to reduce their prices in order to compete with each other in the, in the wholesale electricity market. The other advantage for renewable energy, and this goes for wind, solar, doesn't matter if it's onshore or offshore, is that there is zero fuel cost. So this is the main difference between fossil fuel generation and renewable energy generation. The wind literally costs nothing. The only thing it costs is to build the thing build a wind farm or a solar farm. That's the upfront capital costs. That's the main costs, as well as maintenance costs. Whereas with a coal fired power station, you have to you have to dig up the coal, you have to you have to purchase it on a commodity market. What that means is that the wind farms and the solar farms, they bid into the electricity market at zero marginal cost. So they're they're substantially cheaper when they actually after they've been built and paid off their original upfront costs they're much cheaper to run over time.
2: When you think of a wind farm on land you've got to buy the land or you've got yep. to lease the land or you've got to work in with the farmers or yep. wh- whoever it is what happens out in the sea who owns the sea?
1: Yeah I think that'll be different in different places again you know at the moment Victoria has Australia's first offshore wind farm is proposed um, off the coast of Gippsland in Victoria so that's both in state and federal waters. So nobody owns that. You know, there might be some areas where it's on indigenous waters. So there are some areas where there's native native title or some form of sort of communal land ownership or, or sea ownership that's held by indigenous people. But in the kind of Western property system, um, it's it's owned by the public. Presumably, you know, there might be systems in the future where companies pay pay, pay royalties or something into to to the public in order to access those areas. But at the moment, I don't think that there's, you know, we haven't even built one of these facilities in Australia, so those those ideas are kind of still being developed.
2: Yeah. One thing I'd imagine is going to be different, you won't have people in the area saying, well, I've got headaches, I feel sick, all those sorts of things that are put out about wind farms on land. Mm-hmm. If it's out in the sea, you cut all those, that rubbish out.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely an advantage. But I'd also say that, you know, it's not to, um, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. You know, there's advantages to on- offshore wind, but onshore wind also has advantages. And the fact that it delivers income to communities and it creates jobs in, in those inland regional areas is really important. So, you know, that, that's a form of drought proof income for many farmers, um, who are trying to manage like a pretty difficult, complex farming business to have your crop, or your, if you're farming, farming sheep or cropping or whatever, and then you also can access a bit of additional income from from wind farms. That's actually really fantastic. I, I wouldn't be surprised, no matter the form of renewable energy, I'm sure we will see some um, absurd scare campaigning, even for offshore wind, even though it's it's not close to people's homes, because in this country we are also dealing with the fossil fuel lobbies. So that is the main um, barrier to these forms of technology, in my opinion.
2: Well, you've talked about the advantages. There must be disadvantages.
1: The first disadvantage is kind of what I mentioned before, the upfront capital cost. So it's they're more complex projects to develop. You have to be careful about where you place them. Obviously, we can't put them in too deep water you want to make sure that you're not developing a project in a sensitive ecological area the easiest way to do that is don't build don't build a wind farm on top of a marine park um, <laughs> but you know we can sensibly um, plan out these projects so yeah the, the main disadvantage is the upfront capital cost and so we're seeing that play out at the moment in Australia where we have the star of the south proposed off the coast of Gippsland now just want to emphasise how significant this project is. It's an eight billion dollars project. At the moment, it's a proposed project. It would have um, up to about two hundred and fifty wind turbines, you know off probably a range of around up to ten kilometres off the coastline. coastline, sorry. If it goes ahead, building the the project could create an estimated twelve thousand jobs, uh, including in manufacturing, because with offshore wind farms you actually have to construct, manufacturing facilities close to the project because the, the components are so large, you can't ship them from, you, um, from Europe. So in terms of jobs for Gippsland, very significant. It's also likely to have a really positive impact on electricity prices because of that supply and demand stuff we spoke about before. Whether it's jobs, electricity prices, or action on climate change, because this is going to be a, a big producer of clean energy, cutting pollution, really positive, great idea. Because it's in state and federal waters, though, it requires both state and federal approval. And the project was kind of put on the table about a year ago, but it's been in the works for a while. The state government has said, you know, this is a great idea, we're supportive. So the ball has been in the federal government's court, but basically they haven't really done anything to, you know, allow the company to continue doing, pursuing an exploration license, which is what you'd need to actually go and do all the... The very detailed studies of ecological impact and all that stuff. In terms of the impact on finance, with with projects of this size, uh, it's really important because they're quite costly to build in the first place. They really rest on investors being able to provide that money to get them off the ground. And so I think that the issue is that if you have a federal government that is opposed to renewable energy, which we do at the moment in Australia they can really effectively hold up these these kind of important projects. And really, the um, the people that are putting the money in to, to build them, they're not going to be able to invest their money until until the government is um, willing to sign off on an exploration licence, which they really should be able to do. So that's a question for the, the federal government, um, the new Scott Morrison government.
2: What's the timeline to get it going?
1: I think that uh, it probably... Where we're up to with this project is... They've done the kind of initial planning and then they have, have applied, I believe they've applied for an exploration license with the federal government, which is where they could then go off and kind of do geological surveys, ecological surveys, extended community engagement to actually make the proposal very solid and make sure it ticks all the boxes. So that's really important to make sure we don't damaging, you're not damaging anything when you build a wind wind farm it probably will take a couple of years you know if the federal government today signed off on the exploration license for the star of the south it would probably take the company a couple of years to pull all of that really complicated complex detailed information together in their current um communications they're saying construction would start around 2022 but it's dependent on whether whether the federal government can get its act together you know, sign off on the exploration licence. So that's not the actual planning approval. That's just the permission to go and do the detailed assessment to see if the project is viable. So, yeah, after the exploration licence is done, they would then apply for planning approval from both the state and the federal governments.
2: And it's not as if they're reinventing the wheel, is it? It's been done before, as you said, in Europe mainly.
1: Yeah, that's right. But, you know, in Denmark, they're sitting at around 46% renewables, A lot of that is offshore wind. It's a maturing industry in Europe. This is the first significant real project that could go ahead that's been put on the table in Australia. So we do have a little bit of catch up to do um, with other parts of the world. You know, it's also um, offshore wind's really starting to get some momentum in the US. There's one operating project off Rhode Island, but there's about 25 projects um, around the country. That are, that are proposed. Not all of those will go ahead, but you can see across, you know, the Nordic countries, Scotland, parts of the US, offshore wind is really starting to take off, and it's because it fills that really important niche in, in providing the the stable, ongoing electricity. It's very efficient once it once it's built. There is an important niche there, so I think Australia needs to take it very seriously. And you know, to be honest, we've got abundant renewable energy resources uh, onshore and offshore. And if we want to transition to renewable energy and actually deal with the problem of climate change, we have, to, um, we have to get on this sooner rather than later.
2: And, of course, the amount of coastline that we've got in Australia.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's probably a bit of challenges in Australia around where exactly you can develop it because we've got a coastline, we've got, we've got the Pacific Ocean, which is a powerful, powerful ocean. I doubt we're going to see the entire coastline of Australia <laughs> um, with, with wind turbines. But there's, um, there's definitely some places like around Tasmania and places like that where um, you could definitely develop some offshore wind projects.
2: So you can't have a too strong a wind. Is that what you're saying?
1: More talking about the ocean, like the yeah. actual depth of the ocean. Yeah. and, and
2: we are close to the shore. It's not very deep, is it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I guess it depends where exactly you develop the projects but just keeping in mind part of the reason to build it further offshore is to access those highest wind speeds to be able to build a taller wind turbine tower i'm not an engineer i'm not a i'm not a a renewable energy developer i'm a campaigner i'm not fully aware of all of the complex decisions that go into deciding where these projects are proposed but I imagine it's, there's a whole range of different factors they have to take into account. There's definitely a lot of opportunity. And, yeah, I when I go and talk to people in the Latrobe Valley and Gippsland, you know, Hazelwood has closed. For the climate, that's a really good thing, but it also means that people have, um, you know, lost their jobs. This is an opportunity to, to really get behind a new emerging industry that it's going to require a lot of work, uh, a lot of blue-collar work. And that's whether that's construction, manufacturing, maintenance. So yeah, there's big opportunities for Australia.
2: Who are you talking to in the the Valley? Is it mainly unions, or is it community groups? Where are you? Yeah,
1: yeah. We often do a bit of work with a group called Voices of the Valley, which are a community group. They formed uh, after the Hazelwood mine fire, which was back in 2014. So yeah, people were just obviously outraged that you know nothing had been done to prevent what was actually a just environmental catastrophe. They've really taken the charge on the idea of transitioning the Little Tribe Valley to renewable energy and to do that in a way that's good for the community and creates jobs. So I've had a bit to do with them. There's also quite a lot of climate groups um, in the Little Tribe Valley and throughout Gippsland. And so, yeah, we've also had a bit of involvement, quite a bit of heavy involvement with the gas field free movement. So, yeah, Friends of the Earth led the campaign for the ban on unconventional gas and fracking in Victoria. A lot of the groups were throughout Gippsland, including in the um, Latrobe Valley.
2: Have you talked to Liberal politicians, both in Victoria and in Canberra?
1: Not specifically about offshore wind. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's important because of the change in the, you know, the leadership of the federal government. We now have a new energy and a new environment minister. We've seen that the federal government has been delaying any decision on, on this particular project for about a year. So now there's new ministers that are there. So the question is, will they, Will they turn over a new leaf and prove that they can actually deliver something that's good for the community? Or are they going to continue to, to hold their, their cards close and take an unfair position on renewable energy?
2: What do you know about their backgrounds, the new ministers?
1: I don't know too much about the environment minister. Um, I believe Melissa Price is her name. I believe she has a bit of a background as, um, associated with coal. Angus Taylor, the new energy minister, though his his reputation does precede him. Many people have described him as one of the most anti-renewables politicians in the parliament. So he has a history as as an anti-wind ideologue. That's really concerning, but it, he's now the energy minister. Whether or not he has a history, campaigning against renewable energy is not you know, relevant to his role as minister anymore. He should be able to take an unbiased position uh, and assess things on merit. And I think that if you look at renewable energy, it's the cheapest new generation. We've got projects like Star of the South that you know, represent a huge opportunity for jobs and putting downward pressure on power prices and cutting pollution. Is he going to assess these based on merit or is he going to assess these based on ideology? And I think he should be assessing them based on merit.
2: What are you asking people listening to interviews like this to do?
1: Well, the first thing that uh, I would ask people, if if you're interested in offshore wind, um, and if you're interested particularly in offshore wind in Australia, we have just um, kicked off a new online action on the Friends of the Earth Australia website. So if you go to Friends of the Earth Australia and click on take action, there'll actually be a um, petition there which is going to go to the federal government asking them to put aside ideology and to back offshore wind In Australia. It's a really important new form of renewable energy that we need to take advantage of and the Star of the South is at the moment the only project on the table, so it's time to stop holding up this industry and actually support it. We also want the federal government to clarify their position on wind energy, particularly with Angus Taylor becoming the energy minister and having a reputation as an anti-wind campaigner. Is he going to clarify that he Supports this renewable energy technology because yeah, if he doesn't, it's it reveals uh, some some bias in their decisions. Thanks, Pat. Thank you so much.
2: And that is Pat. Thank you, Pat Simon's from Friends of the Earth here in Melbourne. And if you'd like to get involved, as Pat said, it's Friends of the Earth Australia org to have a look at um, what they're proposing and what you can do if you support offshore. Wind farms, or if you just support any type of renewable energy for Australia and for the world, we need something to stop the rot that's going on at the moment. It's 4:34, um, and you're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. You could be listening on your old analogue 8:55 a.m. You could have a digital 3CR. You could be listening on your computer, streaming real time. Or you could be, I always get this one wrong, it's audio on demand and that's where the programs on 3CR sit there for a week and you can queue into any of those programs for a whole week and then they move on to the next week. Or you can have it podcast straight to your computer and you listen just when you feel like it. So that's 3CR, plenty of options to listen to this wonderful radio station.
4: Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, and really healthy and nutritious.
0: <speaking in> Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter.
5: Friends of the Earth love.
2: Prince of the Earth last week slammed the federal government. In July, in London, four days of protests were held against Trump's visit. And here in Australia, peace and anti-war groups were already meeting to plan actions for his 19th of November planned visit here. One is IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australian Network, and I'm speaking with Shirley Winton. Shirley, it's been announced over the weekend that he is not coming. Not entirely a surprise?
6: No, it wasn't entirely a surprise. Well, there's different aspects to it. And one of them is that actually Trump probably doesn't... Well, Trump probably views Australia as pretty much a, a loyal ally and didn't need, the government didn't need to be constantly reminded about um, where its service should lie. And I think that's also manifests itself in the fact that um the US still hasn't appointed a um, an ambassador, a US ambassador to Australia. So I think we've been without a US ambassador for over a year, which isn't you know, of great concern. But usually US ambassadors are a I guess a, a signal of uh, respect for a country to ensure that there is ongoing diplomatic discussions and um uh, flow of mutual information and the fact that we haven't got a um, we haven't got an, an ambassador I mean it's, it's obvious that there's other and we know that there's other channels of communication directly between the Australian government, the, the Australian military, the defence and also the political with, um, with the political establishment in America. So I mean Australia has, is not a priority for Trump because Reliable and basically does what it's what the the U.S. directs it to do, and that's been the history of the last 30 years or so. It is not surprising. The other aspect it, it is um, the the conference in um, the Pacific. That's a small fish for Trump, and they again they their view is that Australia is sort of its its proxy in the in the region, and will basically uh, implement the policy the U.S. policies and in the region anyway. Trump really only goes where he thinks it is where he needs to shore up support for the U.S.
2: Perhaps the golf courses aren't good enough here.
6: <laughs> Do you think maybe he was actually scared of the protests? It's a, it's a bit, I mean, I think that from, a, from the government's point of view, it's a bit of a slap in the face, but it's nothing new. I mean, Trump's attitude and behavior turned bull- after he was elected, after Trump was elected. It's pretty much an indication that I think, anyway, that and I think other people have said that. So Australia is like a 51st state of the US, anyway. It doesn't need that, you know, the special attention, diplomatic attention that other countries that um, the US is is trying to draw into its orbit of influence and, you know, as one of its proxies.
2: He certainly got a good serve when he was in Britain recently.
6: It did, didn't it? There were hundreds of thousands that went out right across Britain and he's really disliked, and I think the U.S. is strongly disliked in Europe generally, and it kind of underlines the tensions between the U.S. powers, at the U.S. Empire and the European Union Empire. But amongst the ordinary people, there's a very intense opposition to, to Trump and dislike Trump. But I don't think it bothers Trump. His base is in America amongst the impoverished working class. But, you know, um, we were planning to have, um, in Melbourne, we were planning to have a demonstration on the 19th of November as a coalition of um, a lot of peace groups, anti-war groups, like Independent Peaceful Australia Network, Pax Christi, the Unitarians, the Quakers, the Medical Association for Prevention of War. And our focus was... Going to be, you know, on advocating or calling for an independent foreign policy for removal of the US bases and Marines from Australia, which are posing a risk to Australia's sovereignty. And also some organisations, some of the IPN affiliates calling for ending the US Australia alliance. So that was going to be our focus. The rally that was being organised in Melbourne, very broad based, so there would have been. Organisation, you know, people coming or protesting against him as an individual on, you know, his misogyny, his racism, his sexism, his fascist um, moves or his moves to fascism in America. But the IPAN and the NC war organisations were mainly going to focus on and highlighting the the US-Australia alliance and the need to get out of it. Having said that, there is a possibility that. Pence will come, will be his replacement. Well, we don't know if um, Pence is replacing Trump to attend the conference in the Pacific, the Pacific Countries Conference. We don't know as yet whether Pence is going to stop over in Australia, but certainly if he is stopping in Australia, in Melbourne there will be a rally to highlight and to call for an independent foreign policy for removal of US bases and troops, closing down Pine Gap and also... Some organisations calling for the end to the Us Australia Alliance.
2: And just on a personal level, with a man like him, is not the sort of person that we really want here in Australia.
6: No, that's right. And um, in some way, well, in many ways, him being here is actually will reinforce some of the extreme right wing organisations and the sentiment, that extreme right wing sentiment, the racism of the extreme right. It is important to call out. The reactionary characteristics of Trump and also US policies, uh, US government policies domestically and also internationally.
2: But Pence is right up there with him in Absolutely. his views.
6: Absolutely. But, you know, Trump, because has had a much higher profile and he comes out with these outrageous tweets. People used to think that Hitler was outrageous when, you know, when he first started. Um, Public oratory, and then he became mainstream, and and that's where our concern is lies. Is that you know, whilst Trump might not be taken seriously by some people, or or ridiculed and laughed at. In fact, you know, the economic conditions are such that, uh, particularly in America, where the economy is in crisis, and ordinary workers, working people, are on the front line, but at the sharp sharp end of that economic crisis. Trump is tapping into into that um, disillusionment with the American Democrats, with the American system generally, and war ball- stirring and in- instigating the racism. And um, so, it is concern of when he comes here too, is that it will strengthen, reinforce, and also give greater attention to the the most reactionary, ultra right wing, semi fascist sentiment. Um, in Australia, which is also, you know, apart from America, is also in Europe, to be seen in Europe. Pence is not tainted with that same, you know, racism as openly because he hasn't been tweeted. He's not, you know, seen publicly making, constantly making these landish statements, racist statements, and also policies. But essentially there's not much difference between the two of them. And in fact, Pence is probably, as far as, America's foreign policies. Pence is probably far worse than than Trump. Pence is a a warmonger and he's a tool of and a a mouthpiece for the America's industrial military complex.
2: So when we do find out whether or not he's coming, the, the groups will decide what they're going to do? Oh,
6: absolutely. What we're doing is that we're holding on the 3rd of October IPAN is um, calling a meeting of all its affiliates and other individuals, interested people, organisations, unions to organise, by that time we will know when and if uh, Pence is coming to organise some activities, some rallies. The National Coordinating Committee of IPAN is also, and this will be part of the IPAN's National Coordinating Committee national events opposing Pence's visit here. The other sort of important visits from America is Bannon. uh, There's talk of Bannon coming out also in November. Bannon is a a warmonger and he's a a racist, he's a neo-fascist, and it seems that America's imperial objectives more and more being disseminated around the world. Certainly there should be opposition to, to Bannon in Australia as well. He's advocating very much that Australia should basically instigate almost, uh, stand up, what he calls stand up to, to China. He wants Australia to be much more proactive in, around the South China Sea conflict. He wants Australia to, I think, to to, to be uh, doing basically or even possibly replacing America's activities in, in South China Sea. He's um, predicting a war with China, and I think that that's another aspect that the threat that is lying around in the region, but also posing a threat to Australia, particularly with Australia hosting all the, the U.S. Marines and bases and Australia being a virtually base of, uh, of the U.S.
2: And is Farage still coming? Nigel Farage? Is...
6: I don't know. I don't know if he's coming. There was a discuss- talk about that, wasn't there? Um, there was. So when you kind of think, you know, the three, um, some of the most extreme right-wing that are, uh, making the way to Australia. There's obviously quite serious intentions of stirring up the sort of semi-fascist, fascist, racist sentiments.
2: And then Milo, he's coming back again too.
6: He's coming back too. interesting, isn't it, that they're letting him in but um, Chelsea is being uh, banned from entering Australia. It, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, where it's all moving. When you put it in the context of all the anti-democratic laws that are being um, ushered in, uh, and they're quite breathtaking, right across um, Australia at the state level, but also at the national level. It almost seems like they're setting up a framework for uh, an oppressive state, that when they, in their view, the conditions are right, when there is opposition, there are protests, the infrastructure is, is there for them to use whenever they want to use it. I think all those individual seemingly isolated events should be sort of put in a a broader context.
2: All right, Shirley. Well, I'll catch up with you around the beginning of October.
6: Okay. Okay, Jess. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.
2: And that's Shirley Winton from IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network. Have a look at their webpage and see what you would like to do about joining or not joining that group. A wide variety of people joining it. And it's some, um, as Shirley said, there are all those bits, you put them all together and it's a really scary scenario. You might think it's just one bit here and one bit there, but as she said, put it all together and it is definitely scary. This is 3CR and it's coming up to 448.
3: Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the
0: waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing.
5: Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch.
3: They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces.
5: Subscribe today. Call nine four one nine eight three double seven. Darabin Council is conducting a review of everything it does to support people over 65, and we want your input. Whether you're an older Darabin resident, approaching retirement, or have ageing parents or loved ones, this review is relevant to you. We need all perspectives on how we can make Darabin an age-friendly city. For more information, visit our website on www.arabin.com. Darabin.vic.gov.au or call Darabin Council on 8470 8470 to speak in your language. The City of Darabin is a 3CR supporter.
2: The latest attempt to break the crippling blockade of Gaza by the Freedom for TILAC Coalition has ended with the Israeli Navy intercepting a ship-carrying activists en route to Gaza. Today we look at the history of the Freedom Fratillas and to do that I spoke with Michael Coleman from Sydney, who has been involved with the attempts to break the blockade for a number of years. First, Michael, when did the first Freedom Fratilla set off for Gaza, and why was this form of support for Gaza chosen?
4: The flotillas began in October 2008 uh, when two vessels organised by the Free Gaza Movement, the uh, Free Gaza and the Liberty, successfully broke the Indian main blockade of Gaza. And the motivation then, as it is now, is twofold. Firstly, to raise awareness of the blockade and its impact on the civilian population of the Strip. And secondly, it's an act of solidarity that shows the Palestinian people that our government does not speak for us when it comes to their human rights
2: who are those in the committee
4: there's an international organization called the freedom flotilla coalition uh there's the overarching body that coordinates the flotillas to gaza or has done for the last sort of uh, eight nine years that has 12 members currently from north america through south africa and new zealand are involved turkey uh, and of course, Australia. So, yeah, 12 members currently. They were always looking to expand that number. And, uh, yeah, the coalition is constantly growing.
2: Where do they get the ships from?
4: Ships have come from all sorts of places. Generally, they sail from Europe just because of its ease of sailing across the Mediterranean. But between 2008, or 2009, I should say, and 2018, there have been 33 non-violent direct challenges to the illegal blockade of Gaza. Uh, the blockade is a clear violation of Article 33 of the 4th Geneva Convention, which specifically forbids collective punishment. Unfortunately, none of these 33 vessels after the the first two have made it into the port of Gaza. However, in my opinion, they've all succeeded in raising awareness of the brutal impacts of the blockade is having on the Palestinian residents of Gaza. These include blackouts that last for up to 20 hours a day in most areas of Gaza, uh, an unemployment rate, which is one of the highest in the world at 42%, uh, and currently, I think, Over 90% of the tap water in the Strip is unfit for human consumption, and these are all direct results of the illegal blockade.
2: How did the first two ships get through?
4: Uh, The first two ships were threatened with being stopped, and and, um, there were suspicions that there were attempts at at sabotage on the ships. So my feeling is that um, the Israelis just let them through as they were very small and only sort of had 17 participants. And sort of weighed up the pros and cons of stopping them and ended up letting them. But it wasn't until uh, the first Freedom Flotilla sailed in 2010 that they began stopping them. And and that flotilla had several boats and and quite large ships and were bringing in substantial amounts of aid. And and at that point, I think their um, strategy of having the, you know, um, putting the Palestinians on a diet, you know, if they wanted to maintain that, meant that they had to stop the, the first Freedom Flotilla. Unfortunately, they did that by killing 10 of the actors aboard. That's
2: right. It was a very brutal, brutal couple of hours, wasn't it?
4: It was, it was. And, um, you know, the initial misinformation, uh, around the IDF or the Israeli Navy defending itself proved to be quite false as it is every time that they tell us that they've intercepted our boats without incident. Yeah, there's some clear evidence, um, especially in relation to the uh, Turkish-American who was in a coma for several years afterwards. There's footage of him being um, yeah, shot point blank in the back of the head.
2: How did the others die?
4: Uh, uh, they all sort of died of, of injuries. Uh, most of them were shot from memory. A documentary put together, which I recommend people see that... Kevin Niche, a friend of mine from Canada, had a part in that sort of not only shows the brutality of the Israeli government but also shows the humane nature of the um, flotilla participants actually protect after they disarmed two of the IDF or the Israeli Occupation Force soldiers, actually protected them from, uh, from, from, from other angry activists.
2: What was that flotilla carrying that made it so dangerous to the Israelis?
4: I think it was just the size, personally. Whereas the, the first couple that did get through were, were very uh, were quite small and symbolic, whereas the first freedom flotilla with the help of Turkish organisation IHH was quite large and, and brought in more than just a symbolic amount of aid. You know, since then Israel has tried everything from sabotage to intimidation to stop us challenging their illegal blockade. As I said, the most tragic of these was the, the attack on the Mavi Marmara. That, as yeah, Pulitzer Prize winning author and civil rights actor Alice Walker said when she was participating in Freedom Flotilla 2, the challenges of the blockade of Gaza are the freedom rights of our time and like the 1960s civil rights movement in the US South, we must keep up the struggle despite the attempts to intimidate us.
2: The ship that was attacked, it was the Turkish ship, was it deliberate policy, do you believe, of the government of Israel to kill the Turkish people on board or were there other people on board who were similarly attacked?
4: Uh, there were other people on board that were similarly attacked. I just think it was the flagship of that flotilla and they'd sort of drawn a line in the sand uh, that they were going to stop it. And I think uh, the level of violence on was in meant, to, meant to deter us from coming back. Though, so in the famous words of Zach De Rocca, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me.
2: Now, send us back. It won't stop us coming back. What's your involvement?
4: My involvement dates back to sort of 2008 when I spent six months in the West Bank city of Nablus as a volunteer teaching English and computer-based music production for an organisation called Project Hope and this experience was life-changing for me as once the excitement of experiencing a new culture wore off the realisation hit me that what I was witnessing in the West Bank was the systematic and methodical ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from Palestine and at that point I resolved to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people until their human rights were respected So after returning to Australia, I began participating in the Palestinian-led boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign. And then following the massacre on the MAVI, uh, a friend of mine invited me to a a meeting where he made an impassioned speech that ended with, there won't only be another flotilla to Gaza, there'll be an Australian delegation on board and who's with me. And at that point, six of us put up our hands and Gaza Freedom Flotilla Australia was formed. And since then, we've directly been involved in five challenges of the illegal blockade of the Gaza Strip.
2: Where was your first trip from? And when was that?
4: 2009? No, I, I, I spent six months in, in, in the West Bank in Nablus in 2009. Right. Um, my first uh, adventure or um, sailing with the Freedom Flotilla Coalition was Flotilla 2. We sort of realised after we'd formed uh, late 2010 that by ourselves was probably out, outside the reach of, of our financial capability, so uh, we formed a partnership with the Canadian Boat to Gaza and an organisation from Norway and uh, Belgium, and we all went quarters in, in a boat that we brought an old Greek ferry that we christened the Tereer to show that we were listening to the voices of the Arab Spring, and um, yeah, fortunately, that's flotilla we had 13 of our 14 boats, all in Greek ports, and it was just after the, the Greek financial crisis, and um, There's been some evidence that's come out since one of the quid quid pro quos of uh, Greece receiving financial bailout money was to stop uh, the flotilla sailing, and we were sort of caught up in a a mess of bureaucracy to start with. Uh, Initially, our benches weren't wide enough to be beds, and we didn't have hot water um, on the boats for showers, and it was the middle of the summer in the Mediterranean for hours on a three-day voyage when you're surrounded by the beautiful, crystal-clear Mediterranean waters could be debatable, but uh, eventually they, the Foreign Affairs Department of the, the Greek government at the time had an edict that no ship bound for Gaza could leave a Greek port. But yeah, that didn't stop us. We made an attempt to, to sail out of port without Greek permission and to get to international waters where the Greeks wouldn't be able to stop us. As The Greeks respect international waters, unlike the Israelis. That attempt to involved me and... Um, uh, another girl from Canada who were later christened the co-activists on Twitter, positioning ourselves in front of the Greek Coast Guard as uh, unpowered vessels, have right of way over powered vessels, and blocking them from chasing the Tahrir into international water. Unfortunately, the Greek Coast Guard, but Coast Guard boat, while we delayed it, did catch up with them at eight nautical miles and, and towed the Tahrir back to the port of Agos Nicholas off on the island of Crete.
2: You were jailed at one time, is that correct?
4: Yeah, I've, uh, I've uh, for obstructing the Greek Coast Guard, I spent a little bit of time in prison in Greece, only four or five days until the hearing happened, and, uh, yeah, I got a suspended sentence for obstructing the Greek Coast Guard. Uh, and then, uh, after we, we failed to challenge the blockade of Gaza in Freedom Flotilla 2, we, we snuck our vessel into a Turkish port of Fetia, where we rendezvoused with an Irish boat that was also going to participate in Freedom Flotilla 2 and uh yeah we sailed um as sort of an undercover foot so until we hit international waters we, we knew that while the Turks were more sympathetic to the cause and in less financial stress than the greeks uh we didn't want to risk being stopped twice so we sort of presented or, or masqueraded as a the world's most eclectic tourist group for a week in Fedyeh until we left and then once we got to international waters we announced our intentions to challenge the illegal blockade of Gaza and yeah we got to about 40 nautical miles off the coast of Gaza uh, before we were hailed by the Israeli Navy and Israeli occupation forces on the radio and uh, yeah which uh, was quite nerve wracking though there was a beautiful moment when they asked for our final destination and um, David Heath, who was a, a science negotiator, got on the two-way radio and said our, our final destination was the conscience of humanity.
2: Great. Are you all seasoned sailors on these ships or these boats, or is it for some it's a first time?
4: For me, it was. Um, you know, I haven't had a great deal of experience sailing, and there's you know first mates and engineers and skippers that are all qualified. Though many of the activists, yeah, more motivated by the oppression of the Palestinian people than they are by their by their love of sailing.
2: What's it like on the boat? What's the camaraderie like? And, and how long does it actually take you? You say you set off from a certain place and you get to a certain place. How many weeks are you looking at?
4: Well, the last latilla, we actually did a 28-port European tour to raise awareness uh, and hold fundraising events uh, before sailing for the final leg. So that we had two boats sail the Atlantic route to the Mediterranean, stopping at uh, European ports, uh, including England on this one. And uh, we had two other smaller Swedish vessels sail through the canals, also stopping at um, you know, different cities and holding, holding awareness-raising events. And then they all rendezvoused uh, in the Mediterranean on the island of Sicily before two of the boats sailed towards Gaza to challenge the illegal blockade. So this last one lasted... Um, Over three months, but the the last day generally lasts, depending on where we depart from, whether it's Greece or Sicily or another European port, between three to six days.
2: And how would you describe the awareness that people have when you pull into ports?
4: I think the awareness, as you can see by the media coverage of the flotillas, is, is a lot greater in Europe, though so we are making headway in North America and also Australia, as you can see in public opinion polls, which um, show you know greater support for the Palestinian cause.
2: What about the women's boat? What do you know about that one in 2016? Because there was Australians on that one too, I believe the captain was yeah, We were actively Australian. involved
4: in the women's boat to Gaza, we had uh, Australian captain Madeline Abib, who's a... Um, a well-known sailor and also activist. And, yeah, that was to sort of celebrate the role of of Palestinian women in in resistance to the illegal occupation of Palestine.
2: What do you take on the ships, the boats?
4: Occasionally we take symbolic amounts of aid, though we are well aware that uh, there are only symbolic amounts of aid. It's more a civilian-to-civilian action that tries to draw awareness to the uh, legal blockade of Gaza and also you know, the brutal impacts that it has on the civilian population that I listed before, and or at least an example of, of some of them, and yeah also sort of you know, as I mentioned earlier to show the, Pal- the Palestinians that our government doesn't speak for them when it comes to their human rights.
2: Why do Israel get away with stopping ships in international waters when other countries recognize it?:
4: It's a good question. You know, there's been arguments made that they have sort of good lobbying power internationally, and that can be seen definitely in the U.S. and Australia. Though, you know, it is interesting the way the story is covered uh, in Australia and, and the U.S. And, and Europe more broadly. You know, if it was Somali pirates that were doing this off the coast of Africa, I'm pretty sure the media would use terms such as kidnapping and hijacking. Um, unfortunately, Israel. Because these terms are, are very rarely used to describe their illegal actions in international
2: water. Have you been back to the West Bank since you were there last or are you sort of blacklisted now?
4: No, I'm uh, persona non grata for, for 10 years apparently. Um, we didn't get the stamp in, in the passport that when we were, the second boat I was, was captured and attacked off the coast of Gaza. We were told last odd, and we spent a week in Rumler Prison. And several of um, the Canadian and Irish people that were, were with us on have been informed that yeah, they're persona non grata for for a decade because they participated in the slaughter. So yeah, I'm hoping to return to that once my ban, I suppose, is is lifted. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's more price to pay for you know the ability to. Help raise awareness of, of such a one that's having such a you know, devastating impact on the civilian population.
2: How were you treated by the Israeli authorities when you were arrested on the ship?
4: Luckily, there was no one killed on the on the boat. Though, with the use of a taser, we were all sort of manhandled and beaten and shackled, and yeah, had quite invasive searches.
2: Where to from here?
4: Oh, uh, we continue to sail until the blockade is lifted and the freedom of movement of Palestinians is respected and we've made that promise to our partners in Palestine and um, the determination only grows with each voyage.
2: And of course as you're coming uh, getting nearer and nearer to the coast of Gaza you realise that the, the people living in Gaza can't even go out into the sea, they're blocked from that.
4: Yeah, no, i actually lived in Gaza for six months working on a project to try and export Palestinian products called Gaza's Ark. And I uh, did some humanitarian work, you'd call it, the fishermen of Gaza, as we were based in the port, renovating a, a, an old fishing vessel into a cargo ship. Yeah, they uh, are not supposed to go beyond, well, it varies between three and six miles, though in practice they're lucky to get to two nautical miles before they have been shadowed by a... um Israeli occupation force boat and yeah, there's been incidents where fishermen have been killed, uh, had their boats stolen, have been uh, taken to Israel for interrogation, decimated the fishing industry there. I, I think a sort of decade ago, there were 10,000 fishermen uh, that were working in the waters off Gaza. And since the blockade has been in force, that number has dropped to around 3,000 and yeah the the quality of the catch is is quite minimal as a lot of the bigger fish inhabit the rock shelf, which is I think eight or nine miles off the coast, so yeah they can only access very small sort of bait fish and have actually had to turn to uh importing fish, um, which is you know a crying shame and something that the majority of Palestinians living in Gaza can't afford due to the Effect that it's had on the economy there. I think I mentioned before that Gaza has one of the highest unemployment rates in the world, which is almost solely an effect of the illegal blockade.
2: You would keep in contact with the friends that you've made over the years through social media. How are they getting on? I'm sure they tell you what life is like for them, both in Gaza and in the West Bank.
4: Yeah, no, um, you know, life is very difficult, unfortunately, for Palestinians living both in. The West Bank and in and in Gaza, um, you can sort of see the, the brutality that the Israelis use, and things like the Great March of Return, uh, which is, is really a very basic, fundamental human right of being able to go home. I think everyone can relate to that, and you, you can you know sort of see it in the attack on Gaza and and they um, you know not allowing reconstruction aid in post them to rebuild the hospitals and the schools and. And, and the houses that have been destroyed and in the West Bank, you know, freedom of movement is, is a huge issue and uh, appropriation of the Palestinian villages, farming lands and access to water. The discrepancy between what access the settlers have to um, fast travel in and out of Jerusalem, you know, is quite, is quite in contrast with, you know, the system that uh, Palestinians have to navigate. To move around the West Bank to see their families and uh, the water access is, is hugely unequal um, I can't remember the, the the statistics off the top of my head but um, you know you'll see in settlements green grass and swimming pools uh, while Palestinians rely on uh, what little rain water they can they can get from from uh, tanks on the, on the top of their roofs I think it's you know somewhere around end of the water that uh, settlers have access to Palestinian uh, native Palestinian inhabitants I don't know that statistic off the top of my head but there are great discrepancies between the rights of um, illegal settlements or settlers and uh, the indigenous population of the West Bank, the Palestinian people
2: Well as you've said the flotillas will continue until the the people are free. How do people get involved?
4: Uh, They can track down the Freedom Flotilla Coalition on our website they just type Freedom Flotilla Coal and into a Google search, so that will come up. And as we Australia, we've got uh, a Facebook page called Gaza Freedom Flotilla Australia, where they can stay up to date with all our latest initiatives, attend our, you know, fundraisers. Yes, yeah, share news of the brutal impacts of, of the blockade to help create awareness around it. As, you know, we firmly believe when it comes to social change that people lead and governments follow, you know, the tide is turning. While it might not be as quick as some of us like, there's definitely a shift in uh, support for Israel, especially among the younger generations. And we find that uh, quite heartening. And, yeah, we are sort of committed to continue to sail until the blockade is ended, and uh, we're not from that commitment.
2: OK, thanks, Michael.
4: All right, no problem.
2: And that was Michael Coleman from Sydney. And he was speaking about the Freedom Fratilla Coalition, that's the web page, Freedom Flotilla Coalition, and their Facebook is Gaza Freedom Flotilla Australia. Get involved if you can. A great thing to do.
7: 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine.
5: You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at
9: 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3CR.org.au forward slash shop.
5: Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available
6: now.
2: The ICANN Noble Peace Bike Ride took off from Melbourne on Sunday and at lunchtime today I caught up with Jem Ramold from ICANN and one of the riders, John, who's a member of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War in Western Australia. First to you, Jem, a little background to the bike ride.
8: Certainly. So ICANN is Um, currently on the Nobel Peace Ride, which is a 900-kilometre bicycle journey from Melbourne all the way to Canberra. And we're arriving in Canberra to coincide with the one-year anniversary of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, opening for signature at the UN. So this treaty was negotiated and concluded last year, and it's the first one to clearly outlaw nuclear weapons and to set out a very clear pathway to eliminate them completely and... This treaty was adopted by 122 countries last year. So 122 countries have said yes, we support this. This is the direction we want to go. We need to put nuclear weapons behind us. But unfortunately, Australia hasn't yet signed on. So we're um, we're riding all the way from Melbourne to Canberra to uh, stop stopping communities along the way to raise awareness about this new treaty, what it means why it's important, and also to share with the community's um, ICANN's Nobel Peace Prize medal, which we were awarded last year because of our role in helping to achieve this treaty.
2: Great. Can I speak to John? Yeah, I'll put John on. Thank you.
10: Hello, my is John Stace.
2: Good afternoon, John. Now, you're from Perth, but you haven't ridden all the way from Perth, have you?
10: Uh, no, no, I haven't. <laughs> but uh, look, it's just lovely to be here. We're riding from uh, Melbourne through to Canberra. Uh, and it's just a uh, lovely countryside. But, you know, the, the, the main message we want to get across is that uh, we, we want to get rid of nuclear weapons because, unfortunately, uh, they are just so horrible for mankind. I've got ten grandkids, and I want them to grow up in a world where they're not being threatened by nuclear weapons. And, of course, if, uh, if there was a nuclear war, it would be horrible for them and horrible for billions of people. So I'm doing what I can to try and... Uh, Uh, abolish them and uh, the next step uh, for people in Australia is for the Australian government to sign on to the nuclear ban treaty.
2: Can I ask you a little bit about the ride? How many people have you got on the ride at the moment? Seven. Okay.
10: We're uh, uh, about uh, 30 kilometres north of Yay and uh, look I'm just not sure of the next little town. Uh, uh, Woodfield, yes, yes, Uh, but uh, Uh, and and, uh, we're working very well as a group.
2: How many people have you managed to speak to on the way?
10: Uh, Well, look, I'm going to pass you uh, back to Jim for that.
2: Yes, what was that? Okay. That's obviously a car. Were you billeted at night, that sort of thing? How does that work?
8: Yeah, we've been reaching out to local communities for the last few months to tell them that we're coming on our way. And there's been an amazing outpouring of support. The last two nights we've been staying in the Anglican churches at Ye and at Whittlesea. And both nights we've actually had local community members bringing us dinner, uh, potluck dinners, and also coming back in the morning and giving us breakfast and hosting us and being really generous with their um, hospitality in these towns. Some nights along the way we're camping and we have a camp kitchen to be self-sufficient along the way. And some nights we're staying in uh, friendly farms and scout halls, so we'll be taken care of all the way to Canberra, um, and then of course we'll be joined in Canberra by uh, many more people for the final cycling leg uh, on the 20th of September, uh, and for a a march and a rally up to Parliament House to deliver the Nuclear Weapon Ban Treaty and the Nobel Peace Prize Medal, um, and to kick up a fuss about Australia not yet signing on to this important agreement.
2: Are you picking people up on the way?
8: Yeah, so in different towns, people are joining us um, on bike. Uh, we have in Banala, from Banala to Albury, it's over a weekend, so I think there'll be about 20 of us then, and some people from the town will join us for the first 10 or 20 Ks coming out of town. Um, and we're also doing uh, lots of media outreach along the way, so sending photos to the local papers and doing interviews with journalists. And we're also holding events in three towns along the way, so... These are um, at the local council buildings or, in one case, the uh, library. So this is in Benalla, Albury and Gundagai. Um, along the way, we'll have one-hour events to d- talk about uh, what we're doing and the nuclear ban treaty. And also we have an exhibition to put up, uh, which tells the story of the humanitarian initiative that led to uh, the treaty being adopted and and to ICANN being awarded the Nobel Prize. So that'll be up in each of those towns for a full day for local people to come and, and learn about it and to also hopefully get on board and support what we're doing.
2: What have you got on your bikes to let, you, let people know who you are?
8: We have beautiful hand-sewn flags. They're triangle flags made of, I think it's applique, and these were made by an artist in Port Adelaide and we, some of them have the classic anti-nuclear symbol that came out during the Jabaluka movement designed by Kathleen McCann. Some of them have the uh, peace symbol. Some of them have the ICANN logo, which is a missile uh, being snapped apart in the middle of a peace symbol, and others just have a, a fist raised in the air in defiance of the nuclear order. So um, we look really colourful, and we also have core flute placards that are circular that uh, are attached to our wheels, um, that have the ICANN symbol on them as well. So it's very obvious uh, what we're doing um, and yeah, we look, we look fantastic and colourful as we ride into town.
2: You're getting plenty of BIPs from motorists?
8: Uh, yeah, we have been getting some supportive BIPs. Um, today we're on a rail trail, so we're actually off the road all of today. Um, but yeah, it's amazing how word travels from town to town. Last night we were in Yay and, and today one of the support vehicles stopped off in Yark where we're having lunch and the person at the local cafe said, oh, I know about you. You were in Yay last night. So yeah, word travels quick and everyone is just really excited to um, have this Nobel medal passing through on a, on a bicycle. I'm pretty sure that not too many Nobel prizes have been transported interstate by bicycle and we're making sure that it, it never actually travels in a support vehicle so that symbolically it's always on the road rolling uh, all the way to Canberra.
2: How many k's do you hope to ride each day?
8: Oh, it varies each day. Some days are small and it's 30 to 40 kilometres and then some other days are about 100 kilometres. So it's it's different day to day depending on what the terrain is like and how many hills there are and also um, what the road is like. We'll be riding on some gravel roads and also we have rest days, a few rest days along the way where we everyone has time to Wash their clothes, and where we can have the events, and and have a bit of a rest.
2: It's only day three now. Is the weather been kind to you so
8: far? The weather has been gorgeous so far. It's just cool air and beautiful sunshine. And it's cold overnight, so we've been lucky to have some church halls to sleep in. Um, tonight we'll be camping, but everyone's got camping gear. So we should be warm enough. And who knows, we might encounter some rain along the way. We probably will. But that's all part of the adventure.
2: Parliament won't be sitting when you arrive, will they?
8: It will, actually. It will, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so we've timed. uh, It's actually lucky that the 20th of September, uh, which is the date that we're arriving for, is actually the last sitting day of the next parliamentary sitting period. So we'll be have, taking the opportunity to visit some parliamentarians and we'll have a reception, a, a welcome reception hosted by Andrew Wilkie, MP, for our arrival at Parliament. And we'll have um, some parliamentarians also speaking at our rally. Anthony Albanese will be speaking um, at that on the 20th of September. And, of course, Labor is very important in this process. We've been building support among the Labor Party and currently actually 75% of federal Labor parliamentarians have pledged their support for the Nuclear Weapon Ban Treaty. So we're hoping to see that converted into a a policy commitment that Labor will sign and ratify the ban treaty when they next form government, hopefully at their national conference in December in Adelaide.
2: Okay, Jim, so all I can say is stay safe and have a wonderful time and make sure you let everyone along the way just know what you're doing.
8: Thank you so much and thanks for 3CR for following our journey along the way.
2: Okay. bye-bye. Okay. bye. And that was Jim Rumal from ICANN. And hopefully I'll be able to speak with them on the road again this time next week. It'll be halfway there by next week. So today's the 4th. Another 7 is 11. And they're due to disembark in Canberra on the 20th. So that will be just over half, half the way. And hear more about their trips and the places they've been and the reception that they've had and hopefully no flat tyres, which would be pretty good. So if you want to ke- keep watching what they're doing, I think the ICAN Facebook page would be a good place to start. That's I-C-A-N, their Facebook. Too. I'm sure they'll be putting up photos about the places that they've been. It's um, 22 minutes past five.
7: Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. The
2: the The United Struggle Project presents The Change, revolutionary hip-hop theatre. Join us for an interactive performance taking audience on an epic journey through the Collingwood Estate underground car park. Transformed into many worlds for you to explore. 630 p.m. Thursday the 13th and Friday the 14th of September and 3 p.m. Saturday, 15th of September.
1: Tickets on the Fringe Festival website are on the door. Free for Collingwood Housing Estate residents, no one turned away.
0: Hey all you mob, be a part of the change.
7: This ain't a pill to will, as us on the prime and embassy burn.
9: And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell.
2: A newly formed group, PUSH for short, is up and running and I'm speaking with one of the members, Debbie Brennan. What's it short for, Debbie? Yes, uh, its full name is PUSH Organising and
11: Educating to build a united front against fascism.
2: The next question is why?
11: PUSH formed recently, like in the last couple of months. It was formed from organizations and some independent activists who have a long, long history in um, fighting as parts of united fronts against fascists it goes back to the 1990s and we formed recently because of the ever-growing urgency to form a united front against fascists and the far right so given just the escalation of what's happening around the world as well as here a united front of everyone who's targeted by fascists in the far right is just so so needed so this is what motivated the forming of push so currently we're like a nucleus that is working toward forming that united front
2: there's plenty of issues to cope with isn't there
11: uh listen they they just keep popping up don't they Probably what's becoming uh, most obvious to everybody is this parade of international far-right visitors, many of them with very close ties to fascists. So we had Milo a while back. He's coming back in December. We recently had Lauren Southern, and Stephen Molyneux, We now hear that Steve Bannon, the former special advisor to Trump, is coming out sometime in November and it just keeps, they just keep coming and coming and coming and they're becoming far more open about why these visits because clearly Australia is seen to them as a strategic place in the, in their Efforts to be building and coalescing, cohering a global far right movement. So, yes, things are happening, and these visits are just an example of what is um, emboldening splintered fascist groups here. So we see, we've seen those fascists doing all sorts of things from raiding, local councils to attacking refugee rallies and so on
2: and of course they're in the parliament too just the announcement i read this morning that the fellow from the Cata party anning is going to accompany milo on his tour of australia
11: exactly exactly so and that that's that's an important bit of news there so when when milo comes out in you know december He's going to be coming out with this far-right commentator well-known in the United States called um, Ann Coulter, and they both will be touring Australia with Fraser Anning. So, yes, those ties are just getting very, very close.
2: And, of course, it doesn't work both ways, does it? The, The left are prevented from coming, and you're not actually saying that they shouldn't come. But that, it should be a bit balanced.
11: That's correct. What, what we're saying, what Push says, is that we should we should never appeal to the state, to the state authorities, to ban anyone, no matter how how outrageous and horrible they are. The, um, the reason for that, and this is where what's happening now with Chelsea Manning shows us why we should never appeal to the state because we say that the state should not have those powers to stop people because more than anything, they'll be using those powers to stop the likes of Chelsea Manning, who herself is an antidote, her voice is an antidote to the never-ending wars, to to the hideous bigotry that's building up, So the likes of Chelsea Manning should be coming out here to be speaking to the crowds who want to listen to her. But the state is using its powers to let the likes of Lauren Southern and Milo in, but keep the likes of Chelsea Manning out. When the horribles come in, we just organize to let them be sorry that they ever came. But So it's really up to us on the ground to be deciding who we want to have here and who we want to hear and who we don't.
2: And not to forget Bassam Tamini who was stopped, I think it was last year. Yes. And, and his daughter ended up eight months in jail. Yes,
11: exactly, exactly. So, you know, I mean, Australia has a history, the Australian government, I should say, has a history of using those powers. Be stopping the very people who we should be able to hear.
2: Well, I've got the news this week that our friend Trump's not coming, but Pence is likely to come in his place. And as I said to someone a little while ago, he's not much better, is he?
11: No, (laughs) because, well, after all, I mean, it is the Trump administration, whether it's Trump or Pence or someone else. And of course, we're going to get a double whammy. You know, we're going to have. We're going to have Pence and then of course Steve Bannon coming out. And if anybody, you know, saw Steve Bannon being interviewed last night on Four Corners, we can see why that's something to be taking note of and organizing against because he, he is saying quite openly that, uh, he's, you know, tramping around the world to, um, proselytize about economic nationalism. So that far right nationalism is is very much on the march. I guess to be on the, the the positive side of that, you know, we're on the march and this is where uh coming back to the formation of push is very, very important because this is the opportunity for organizations, whether they be Feminist organizations or left or Jewish or South African or any organization, the targets of of fascists and the far right to come together and work together. And uh, above all, the unions really need to be a part of this. If we just listen to the news again yesterday, Philip Galea, who's now in his trial for having planned to uh, bomb places. One of the places he planned to bomb was Trades Hall. So fascists do hate unionists and unions. So we need this united front, and we need this united front with unions who organize workers. Workers are already organized in their unions in a very disciplined way. So it's there for us to become a part of, and PUSH uh, is certainly putting the word out there definitely get in touch with us and let's talk
2: and how to get in touch the
11: uh, easiest way at the moment is uh, by email and that email is antifascist.push at gmail.com they can look at the facebook page which is antifascist.push and that facebook page has the call-out published on it, which explains in a lot more detail about why we formed and why we are putting that call out far and wide for um, groups and individuals to get involved.
2: Are you Australia-wide?
11: We're currently um, here in Melbourne, but certainly we want to be Australia-wide, and I think we can be. Okay. All right, Debbie? Well, thank you very much, Jan.
2: And that's Debbie Brennan and it's PUSH and it's Organise and Educate to Form a United Front Against Fascism and I think really well needed here and in many countries around the world now. It's 4.34 and this is course CR.
5: VCR is in the running to receive nearly $100,000 to help us retrofit our station for greater accessibility.
0: That means better handrails, doors, taps, ramps
8: and more to provide improved access for everyone. But we need your support.
7: Do you live within 5km of the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy? If you do,
6: you're eligible to vote for us.
0: Our project is part of the Victorian State Government's Pick My Project Scheme.
8: And you can jump online and vote for 3CR's Community Radio Accessibility Project by going to 3cr.org.au. It's only with your vote that we can receive this important funding to make our station more accessible.
5: Darabin Council is conducting a review of everything it does to support people over 65, and we want your input. Whether you're an older Darabin resident, approaching retirement, or have ageing parents or loved ones, this review is relevant to you. We need all perspectives on how we can make Darabin an age-friendly city. For more information, visit our website on www.darabin.com darabin.vic.gov.au or call Daravan Council on 8470 8470 to speak in your language. The City of Darabin is a 3CR supporter. The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair coming up on September 8th and 9th in Eltham. There'll be books, art, giftware and talks by Philip Johnson, A.B. Bishop and Loretta Childs. There'll also be demonstrations and workshops on botanical art, propagation and native bonsai, as well as activities for children, refreshments and door prizes. Saturday and Sunday, September 8th and 9th, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Contact at APS Yarra Yarra at gmail.com or call 0430 513 433 for more details. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter.
2: Reacting to the decision of the Trump administration to end funding to the UN-Palestine Refugee Aid Agency, (UNRWA), an agency spokesperson said, quote, if UNRWA didn't receive emergency catch injection in the next 30 days, when its funds are expected to run dry, a doomsday scenario could unfold, Unquote. I'm speaking with Nasser Mashni from APAN, the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network and co-presenter of Palestine Remembered, here at 3CR on Saturday mornings at 9.30. Nasser... Has this decision by the Trump regime been expected? They had already slashed funds early this year. And what impact has that had?
0: The earlier funding wasn't immediately felt in the sense that it wasn't a complete cut-off. It was a, a decrease in the amount of aid that was going to be coming through. And so ONRA and um, the other donors expected there would be a second tranche, or, you know, and possibly even a third, and that ultimately the United States would honour its commitment to ONRA. The reality is, as we know now over the, over the weekend, the United States is no longer going to honour its commitment and obligations to ONRA uh, and to the Palestinians that were, became refugees when the State of Israel was created. And so there is a significant gap now between UNRWA's mandate to care for and take care of the Palestinians that were ethnically cleansed when the State of Israel was created and their descendants. And so the gap is huge today, Jan.
2: I'm just wondering how it came to be that the United States were giving that much money to UNRWA in the first place.
0: A, the United States obviously is the world's largest economy. B, what we need to do is go back to 1949 and uh, Resolution 194, which was the 11th of December 1948, which called for the unconditional return of Palestinian refugees. Israel was admitted into the United Nations and its admission was predicated, predicated on the full implementation of Resolution 194. Now, the United States was instrumental in creating UNRWA in 1949 and since then has been its lead funder and and you know this is the the thing Nikki Haley can say they will fund UNRWA if the organization were in quotes change the number of refugees to be accurate what Israel has been forcing onto uh, UNRWA and through the United States now has arguably achieved this object is to say Refugees are only those people that left, that were ethnically cleansed in 1948, that their descendants are not refugees. In every conflict around the world, whether it's been in places like Afghanistan, Sudan, Somalia, Congo and beyond, who so have experienced decades of displacement and lacks of, uh, lack of resolution, their children and grandchildren are, uh, are recognised as refugees and assisted by UNHCR.
2: Why does the US get away with this?
0: that 's a question to the power dynamics of the world. The reality is the United States is currently in uh, about to start uh, barack obama 's last gift to uh, israel, which is thirty eight billion dollars over ten years that uh, America is going to pour into israel. one of the most developed countries on the planet with one of the best armies in the world they 're going to get three point eight over four billion Australian dollars a year and yet $200 million that, uh, that is short for this year, and the $300 million commitment the United States has had to UNRWA is not going to be there. And one of the, one of the um, terms they've said is that the model is irredeemably flawed operation. I mean, this is the same country that spent, you know, close to $2 trillion, over $700 billion in Iraq, over $700 billion in Afghanistan, on two unnecessary wars, and the UN Relief Agency for Palestinian Refugees is improperly run. I mean, it, it, it's absurd. Well, it's, it's all part of a greater mission. And I think the challenge is, with Trump pandering to his voter base, where he said, I'm going to cut off, you know, these quote-unquote leech countries that are, uh, are taking money from us, and, and it, it rings well to his voter base. They're, they like the idea of not giving aid. The thing that isn't you know, mentioned is the pittance that the aid given to the Palestinians in comparison to the aid that's given to the Israelis. They're getting away with it and they're emboldening. In fact, this is the bit that, you know, often gets missed. Israel, post the Six-Day War in 1967, annexed Jerusalem, which no country had recognised until May 13 this year. May 14, the uh, United States moves its embassy to Jerusalem and arguably, de facto, recognises Jerusalem as the... Sole capital of the state of Israel, and, and removing Palestinian rights and claims to that city. The, the reality is that that hard right wing faction within Israel, that really ultra right conservative, we want it all, we want all the land, we want to be Jewish, and we want democracy, and we're going to be a democracy, is emboldened by this Trump style of politics where we got Jerusalem, now we're going to get rid of Onra. Because the challenge that the Israelis have, or particularly hardcore Zionists have, is that they invoke a 2,000 year old right of return. So any Jew anywhere in the world can uh, perform Aliyah, return to Israel, claim Jewish citizenship, and immediately benefit from all of the institutions that uh, favor Jews within historic Palestine. That 2,000 year old right of return trumps, pardon the pun, my 70 year old right to return. My grandfather is buried in Palestine, and I have to get permission from a first, second, third, fourth generation Pole, Lithuanian, German, Israeli Jew. It's an absurdity.
2: If other countries don't take up this slack of the, the loss of the money, what will it mean for Palestinians?
0: It's a disaster. UNRWA is responsible for 5.5 million Palestinians within East Jerusalem, the West Bank, Gaza, Lebanon and Jordan. Of those uh, 5.5 million, over half a million of them, boys and girls, in over 700 schools, went to school for the first day of the new term yesterday. We're talking everything from aid to health services to education, social services, medical uh, services... UNRWA is in fact, well, it would provide nine-tenths of all our social uh, support for, for um, all the Palestinian refugees.
2: How much of the budget is this money? Is it 50%? 40%? 30%? The money that's been cut? Yeah,
0: I, I, I don't know exactly, but it would be, it's well over half.
2: Over half. What has been done to approach the other countries who give money to UNRWA?
0: The other funders within on many of them have advanced their contributions, so they were perhaps not due to make a second contribution or a third contribution for some month, weeks and months. They've in fact brought all of that forward. There's been an increase from the Gulf states. That being said, the, the gap between what the U, uh, US was providing and what they're not going to be providing is huge and hasn't been accounted for as yet.
2: And a lot of the people who work for the UN agency are actually Palestinians themselves.
0: Correct, yeah. So, one of, one of the great features of the UNRWA program is that it empowers Palestinians to take, uh, take charge of their own futures. So, throughout the education process, whether they become teachers or, or nurses or doctors or social service providers, etc., a big chunk of the, the working community of UNRWA are, in fact, Palestinian refugees themselves.
2: And we're not just talking about Palestinian refugees within Palestine, we're talking about Palestinian refugees in Jordan, in Syria, in Lebanon, all those countries.
0: Absolutely. We're talking about five and a half million people who are within kilometres, within kilometres often Jan, a day's walk at best of their ancestral homes. And as we know, since March 30 in Gaza, the Palestinians there every Friday have been marching to the 1949 armistice line, to the cage of the prison that is Gaza, demanding their inalienable right to return. And this is is something that we have to remember. A refugee's right is inalienable. It's a birthright. It is non-negotiable. It is a legal, historical and individual human right And it's enshrined in international law. No one can give away anyone else's right. No one can give anybody else's right. Whether it's Trump or Kushner deciding that they have decided they don't want to fund UNRWA, or Benjamin Netanyahu or any of his other right-wing Israeli Knesset members and members of Likud, they cannot take away my son's right to return. Not even I can.
2: What impact is this going to have tensions so High at the moment, and they have been for a long time, especially with the youth.
0: Every time I visit Palestine, and I'm overwhelmed with the humanity of the Palestinians. Every deprivation, every checkpoint, every humiliation, and the dignity of the Palestinians' steadfastness is something to behold. On the outside, we look in and go, "How much more can they take?" And you know, it's an academic. Question: uh, I'm never surprised by Palestinian resilience. They'll find a way. They'll find a way. That's that's just what's so beautiful about Palestinians.
2: So there's got to be more NGOs. Got to be more people-to-people with the Palestinian people, and not rely well, on on UN. Is that one of the well,
0: answers? We, we, I think I think um, you know if we, if we recall the struggle against apartheid South Africa, and um, the leader of the Senate and House of Representatives went to Ronald Reagan and said, we have to start boycotting South Africa. And Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher still proudly had pictures of F.W. de Klerk in their respective offices, whilst the population had moved away. The population said, no more, we won't be part of this. Now, Israel's got a um, an upcoming festival, music festival. One of the headline acts, Lana Del Rey, she was going to Israel and she tweeted saying, can't wait to entertain you. In fact, the Israelis paid her $700,000 in advance, something of the order of six to seven times what her normal fee for a concert is, to get her to come. Well, over the weekend, she honoured the call of the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign and cancelled. This festival has lost over 50% of its acts. They're falling over like dominoes. Nobody wants to go. Israel is fast, fast becoming a pariah state and uh, increasingly members of humanity are acting out against what their government is doing
2: we get out in the streets and we chant and we give speeches but there's got to be more than that that's what you're saying isn't
0: it well look uh, absolutely it's only uh, you know Palestinians continually live in hope and if you were um, Nelson Mandela on Robben Island 27 years into your Life sentence in a, in a cell six by eight. When do you think it's going to end? But it just, the, the scales of justice don't tip slowly, they just tip very quickly. And in my lifetime, and certainly in the past decade, I've seen a rapid movement towards the, an increasing awareness amongst Australians of just how terrible Israel is in denying Palestinian rights to self-determination and return. It's happening ever so fast, regardless of how much money the Israeli machine pours into uh, its Hasbro. It's, you know, uh, political... um, It's increasing.
2: And that's what's happening in the United States too, isn't it? Not so much with the older Jewish people there, but the young Jewish people who who know what's going on and and they're not going to take it.
0: Well, you're correct. I mean, you know, the... uh, Israel runs a uh, birthright program and it's funded by Sheldon Anderson who you know, contributed over $100 million to Trump's election campaign and Sheldon Anderson takes great pleasure in claiming credit for the Jerusalem uh, embassy move. And he funds this program as a 7-10 to 10 day trip for any Jew to, to go back to Israel and reclaim their birthright. And increasingly we're seeing Jewish Americans uh, not take up the free ride we're seeing uh, in the past weeks and months we've seen uh, attendees on these trips call out the tour operator saying, hold on a second, there's another people here, why aren't we seeing them? Why aren't you showing us what's going on? And to the point where in excess of I think over 10 now have actually filmed themselves walking off the tour. You know? And so once they're off the tour they're going to have to pay back the birthright program. So they're taking both a moral but also financial cost to uh, jettison themselves from the propaganda tour.
2: How does BDS work here for Australians?
0: So we ask all Australians of good moral conscience to, to support the Palestinian Civil Society call for a boycott, divestment, sanction campaign. And what an Australian can do is they can have a look at the barcode on any product that they might buy and see if it's made in Australia. If the numbers are 729 Buy a product from somewhere else. I mean, ideally, we want you to support Australian industries and Australian products, but choose not to buy. That's a very simple thing. You, as a human being, we can make a very simple gesture or act and choose not to buy. Now, if you're an artist, don't normalise the uh, Israeli occupation of Palestine by participating in them. If you're an academic... Find somebody else to work with. You don't have to work with an Israeli academic that, uh, that comes from a, a university built on stolen Palestinian land that denies Palestinians the right to the same education just because they celebrate God on a different day.
2: And joining APAN is another way.
0: Absolutely. So if our listeners would like to go to APAN, apan.org.au, we'd love for um, them to join our group. APAN is the lead Palestinian Advocacy Network uh, in Australia and it has many member organisations including unions, Jewish groups uh, and many individuals.
2: How do you advocate?
0: We do a number of different activities on a state level as well as federally. We're putting together a contingent and a program to lobby the the upcoming Labor National Conference to change their current Palestine policy that um, currently sits at if... There has been no change in the negotiations with a two-state solution. The next Labour government will look with other like-minded countries towards recognising the state of Palestine, which is, you know, wishy-washy. And we want that resolution changed to the next Labour government will immediately recognise the state of Palestine, which is, you know, the position taken by Jeremy Corbyn. That's coming up.
2: Okay. thank you. Great. And that was Nasha Mashni from... APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, and a really good way to support Palestine. There's a, a factory in Hebron which makes the kafirs, the wonderful scarves, and we've been selling them here at 3CR for a couple of years now, and all the profit goes back to West Bank, to the factory to keep it going, and also some of the money goes to Gaza. So if you haven't got one yet... Or you'd like to buy one for a present for someone or any present, birthday, Christmas, whatever, whatever. There's some beautiful colours now and there's also the traditional red and black on white or with white. So I'll just play the card again. But if you haven't got any yet, call in to C- CR or ring up, look on the webpage and make sure that you buy one or two of these wonderful kafir scarves.
7: Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
2: Well, that's about all I've got for today. But I will be back at 4 o'clock next Tuesday. But do stay tuned for Done By Law coming up very soon. A little bit of music and then Done By Law. Bye for now.